Wednesday morning, guys. My name is Jerry Miller, and thank you kindly for joining us here on the I Love Seville Network. We are live wherever, we, wherever you get your social media. The show is called Real Talk with Keith Smith. As we've highlighted over the last four or five shows, Keith is in St. Martin with his family. He's back on set on Friday. But have no fear, fantastic guests are here. Richard Price is in studio, his second rodeo on the I Love Seville Network. Kelly Eppley is in the house as well. We'll talk real estate. We'll talk affordable housing. We'll talk architecture. We'll talk development. We'll talk the future of Charlottesville. And we want you, the viewer and listener, to help shape the discussion by offering your perspective in the comment section wherever you are watching. Our software will aggregate that perspective, and I will relay it live on air. Roger Voisinet, I see you watching the program. I love you, my friend. Thank you kindly for setting up this interview. Judah Wickhauer, if you can go to the studio camera, and then we go to a three-shot, and we welcome gentlemen that I think need very little introduction in this community. Still, we will do it anyway. Richard, we will start with you. Not only is he a squash virtuoso, not only is he a talented architect, not only is he a champion of Charlottesville, Almaro County, and Central Virginia, but he's an A-plus an all-around good guy. And yes, Richard, I could follow you every day if you would like similar commentary to brighten up your morning. If you could, <laughs> introduce yourself to the viewers and listeners, and thank you kindly for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Um, Richard Price, um, architect uh, by origin, also a small-scale developer and planner. Um, the last several years, I'm also a faculty member at a not-for-profit group called uh, Incremental Development Alliance. Uh, it's a nationwide not-for-profit, and our goal is to help uh, communities and, and people or support and train communities and people who want to be small-scale developers and help them develop that kind of skill set in the community. So, and, of course, I've done several projects here in Charlottesville that many people are familiar with, uh, Rivers Bluff, River Bluff and River's Edge and Woolen Mills, and we recently just finished the... Uh, 1130 condo project on East High Street. A project that I would say is near and dear to your heart, a project you are passionate about, a project that offered challenges to you over the course of (laughs) the scope of the project. One or two, yes, that's right. Uh, We'll we'll dig deep into that. Before we do, let's welcome Kelly Epley. It's my first time meeting him. I've known him for about 20, 25 minutes, but I look at his resume and oh my goodness, you are a champion of this community, and you are a man that has a ton of experience. Kelly, if you could introduce yourself to the viewers and listeners. Thanks, Jerry. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Richard, and Likewise, I want to thank yeah. Roger Voisinet for helping set this up. Um, I'm Kelly Epley. I work at Habitat for Humanity. I've had various roles there. Now my, my role is donor relations, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> I really just educate. We have so many people who are supportive of affordable housing locally, through Habitat, my job really is education. I take a lot of people on tours. I help answer a lot of questions and inform them at the level they want to be informed. And uh, we have some 800 people who are deeply involved in, in our success locally, so um, I, I help inform them. Uh, but I've been living, my wife and I have lived here for 33 years. We're county residents, but we have worked in Charlottesville. Um, <clears throat> 12 of those years have been at Habitat for Humanity, and uh, nine of those years have been at Building Goodness Foundation. And so both of those have had a lot to do directly with affordable housing in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I can say about both of those is that <clears throat> I think the nature of Charlottesville should be expounded on it a little bit here. Uh, we do collaboration very well. Uh, the nonprofit market in the is not, uh, sector is not separate from the for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. Habitat has been working closely with developers uh, for mixed-income developments in town for goodness knows almost 20 years now. Richard's been a part of that um, <clears throat> along the way, but we've built 13 different communities in town that had um, housing for that was affordable and market, market rate, so we've been doing that. I've been a part of that, especially lately. We have a huge model going on right now just outside of town <clears throat> on Old Lynchburg Road at Southwood, uh, the redevelopment of Southwood Trailer Park. So I've spent a lot of time doing that. Um, um, but all that to say, I love Charlottesville, love the nonprofit community, the, the way that our whole community gets behind issues like housing 
And I think that's on the table today, especially. I think so. I think so. It's going to be three guys at the coffee shop or the local watering hole talking about real estate development, housing, and where Charlottesville is going to head. I will be a pace setter. I will adapt to you guys. We'll start open-ended with the professor, the architect, the developer over here. Where would you like to begin, Richard Price? Well, we had talked about uh, starting with lessons learned from um, uh, the 1130 condo project. Uh, and and if, if you don't know the project, it's, uh, I think the images, are the first couple images there uh, will show us that, that project. Uh, it's on East High Street. Uh, it's a 12-unit uh, uh, infill uh, condominium project. Um, it, mixed income to the degree I could do that as, as a for-profit developer, and that's, Kelly, we can talk about about the limitations of what uh, what mm. you can do as a, as a for-profit developer. Um, and we, we had a few challenges with that, um, some of them of my own making, frankly. Some uh, were just uh, taking um, a lot more time than I think was really necessary to get entitlements on a project that was supposed to be by right. Um, and I've had some great response, great feedback. A lot of folks have said that's, that's the kind of infill and redevelopment that we really need here uh, in Charlottesville, which I think, I think is, is great. I think that's probably right. Um, and, and I did have several conversations about the project with uh, the planning director uh, here, James, James Fries, who's been leading the um, re uh, the new zoning ordinance and several of the concerns I had uh, uh, several of the problems the concerns I had with the 1130 project he has uh, I think uh, tried to incorporate uh, into the new zoning ordinance so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, for people who would like to do development of this scale in the future in Charlottesville it'll be uh, an easier road uh, the next project. So. Uh, Kelly, you jump in anytime you want. I remember the first time you came on the show, I asked uh -huh. you this question directly. Would you do the 1130 condominiums again if you knew what you knew today? Um, I think your answer back then was no. I'm going to ask you that question again. Um, That's a great question. Okay. I'm going to ask you this question again. I'll set the stage. I see many people asking specifically where they're located. East High Street on the same side of the road of La Michoacana, which is an icon on East High Street, um, kind of across the road from where Riverside is, where Fabio's is. Um, they're beautiful. They are mixed use. You have offices that you see on the front end. I love the, um, do you call them the courtyards? Courtyard, yeah, there's a courtyard. Mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of great use of yeah. grass. Mm -hmm. um, he did a phenomenal job, I'll give you some props here, of, of, of taking building that buildings that need a TLC, and I'm being very nice there, uh, <laughs> and reimagining them into an area or uh, into a project that is well-received, welcomed, and needed in this community. So, Kelly, you jump in anytime you want. I'll throw it back to Richard. If you knew what you knew today, would you do this project again? And what were lessons learned? What were the yeah. lessons learned? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, well, the, uh, the 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 stormwater regulations, state stormwater regs, were relatively new when I did that, and um, I've been doing uh, bioretention projects for for twenty years, so it really was not difficult for me. But it was new for the city, so it was a very extended uh, review process. Uh, partly because of that, the stormwater regs. Uh, I think in the future I would be a little wiser about how I approach that. There's a, um, alternative ways of doing that that might have made my life a little easier if I had uh, pursued those, those patterns uh, for, the, for, for 1130. The, the big issue for me, though, was um, there was, because of economics, I needed to sell those units. It needed to be a condo project. There was no way I was... Uh, could do work that quality uh, as a rental as a rental project in this market, uh, and the only strategy, only possibility I had for um, selling those units was to turn it into a condominium. And um, it was um, no surprise. I guess I'd heard from several people that there was going to be significant expense, just soft costs of creating a condo and and managing it, which are ongoing now there's a condo association so the new code uh, the new zoning ordinance does 
address that issue specifically, that now it's possible to uh, subdivide a project like uh, 1130 into uh, what are called sublots under the new zoning ordinance and sell those as fee simple. And the project uh, we're going to talk about here in a few minutes that I'm working on currently uh, with Roger uh, looks to do just that once the new zoning ordinance has passed. So I would say those are the two the two big issues, was the, the stormwater and the, the condominium. Mm. Yeah. What do you think, Kelly, of the new draft zoning ordinance? We call it upzoning. We call it loosening the zoning, creating more density. Gosh, you could go in so many directions on this one, Kelly. Oh, I could. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I do need to – this is where Dan, Dan Rosenzweig, our, exec, our, our president and CEO, wanted to be here today because he's so much better at the answering these questions. But I, I would really like to speak from, from the Habitat for Humanity perspective in terms of um, something a little more vague, but I think more appropriate to Charlottesville, and that's what neighbors are. <clears throat> a lot of times we think when we start talking about increase in density, we automatically think, oh, my goodness, there's a, there's a little bit of a fear factor on how many people are going to be there, how, you know, what's the density on it, and what yeah. kind of people are going to move into these sort of right. houses. Um, and that's what I, what I bring to this table, especially is um, knowledge of hundreds of our Habitat families who are really hardworking family. And to speak a little bit to the whole definition of what workforce housing is, uh, it's a little unfair because a lot of people who make 60 or 40 percent of area median income <clears throat> have two jobs. <laughs> right. I mean, they're working hard and raising kids and in our schools. And so they are people who want to be a part of the, the homeownership pie as well and be in the affordable housing. And frankly, I, I, would, I would want some of these people, especially most of them, to be my neighbors. Uh, so when we think about increase in density and increase in housing affordability and availability, we really need to humanize it a little bit more. We need to start thinking about people who are our neighbors, who already live with us and are a big part of our economy. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's what I can bring to the table. But I, but I, yeah, to to make more space, make more affordability, <clears throat> and some creativity. <clears throat> excuse me, some creativity to the table um, as we move forward. Um, you're getting props on your show, and, and Richard, jump in. I'll give you uh, uh, a couple of folks that are giving you some love right now. Michelle Black Braden, uh, watching the program right now. She's giving you some props. I see agents from four different, five different real estate firms watching the show. Juan Sarmiento, welcome to the program. Stephen Bernard, welcome to the program. A couple of real estate investors watching the show. Betsy Nugent, watching the program. Aaron King, hello and welcome to the show. Richard, um, upzoning. Where do you want to go on that one? <laughs> Well, um, you know, 1130 was, uh, I think, a classic example of the 1130 condos of, of upzoning. It was that in the existing code we have now that was that was permitted. Um, so I guess there's um, a lot of the upzoning question for me is about fear of the unknown, and I've, I've seen this throughout my career. And, uh, you know, I get it. It's, it. Change is scary. You never know. Not all change is good. Sometimes things happen that people don't like. But uh, I guess I would argue we've had a lot of, a lot of zingers under the current zoning. And um, I think what the new zoning will, will do is help to um, make the new new development, new upzoning, more consistent and more in character with existing neighborhoods. Now, I'm no expert on this new zoning ordinance. I've, I've been through it several times. Uh, I've made a lot of comments on it, but uh, I think that remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, upzoning has been happening. Sometimes it's, it's happening in inappropriate scales, inappropriate neighborhoods. What's that um, mean? Sorry? What's that mean? Inappropriate neighborhoods and inappropriate scales. Well, I, just, I think there are sometimes uh, projects that uh, the current zoning ordinance has several instances where there's been um, very large buildings right next to single-family housing. I think the new, in general, the new zoning ordinance does a better job of making a transition from the uh, the denser areas to the single-family areas. I won't say it's it's perfect by any means, but uh, it's doing a better job of that. Um, but just to go back to, to what Kelly was talking about with uh, mixed-income neighborhoods, which uh, to me that that's really the, the key of any successful development is um, is diversity of some sort and 
in neighborhoods in general. And I know I've tried to, um, to the degree I can as a private for-profit developer, I have tried to incorporate uh, affordable housing in every project I've done uh, over the last 20 years, including I think every project in, in Charlottesville has some component. My, my first project here was uh, we worked with Habitat to uh, build a couple of, um, give them a couple of lots for, for new, new houses in that first project. Uh, most of my other projects have um, um, accessory units uh, built into the project. Um, You're talking ADUs? ADUs, yes, which I think qualifies probably more as, as workforce housing um, than truly affordable housing. But at least, you know, we're trying to create neighborhoods that have a diversity of unit types, diversity of densities, diversity of, of income levels uh, mm. in these projects. And I, and I do that partly because... <coughs> Uh, partly because I want to be a good citizen, but also partly because I think uh, diversity makes better neighborhoods. What would you say is the gold standard for a mixed-income neighborhood? Oh, my goodness. Thanks for asking that question. Um, <coughs> we've been, Habitat has been doing mixed-income neighborhoods for about 20 years now. And I really don't want to make this about Habitat, but what I, I do want to make it about is the collaborative element that, that Habitat is a not-for-profit, as a nonprofit, is doing with market rate developers. Um, I was on staff with Habitat in 2003. I remember the board meeting quite frankly when we said we can't afford to buy a lot for 1500 or for $80,000. Previously, two years before it had been fifteen, then it went up to eighty. We can't do that. And so our board <clears throat> staff said, um, let's think like developers. Let's pull developers yeah. onto our board. Let's start making market-friendly market -friendly communities. And we started Patton Street. Um, that was one of our first. And then Sunrise Trailer Park, we redeveloped that, um, turned it from, 30, uh, from 16 trailers to 70 units of mixed-income housing. Um, and the, the trick of all of that was to make a diversity of housing available. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. We bought a parcel of land, subdivided it, sold off about half the lots to market-rate developers, let them build the higher-end homes. We built the affordable components. We shared architecture in common. So when people yeah. go into those neighborhoods, they don't know what is the affordable housing. They just right. see a nice neighborhood. So um, I would say that Patton Street is a, is a good example. Sunrise is an excellent example. Uh, Lachlan Hills, we've worked um, yeah. in Lachlan yeah. Hills recently. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's a, a great neighborhood to point out. Yeah. Um, so, the, But the point of all that is collaboration. Um, a lot of times people think about nonprofits or especially Habitat as a charity. They don't see them as a development force um, that brings a lot of people to the table to solve the problem of affordable housing. Sure. How is um, COVID and, and, and trends post-pandemic exasperated um, affordable housing and its ecosystem? For example, um, Bloomberg recently identified Charlottesville in 2022 and in 2023 as one of the top 20 markets in the country for remote or hybrid work. So we're seeing sure. a number of transplants moving to the area, working remotely with jobs outside of Charlottesville, earning paychecks that perhaps don't align with um, other community members. Um, mm. I was also taken aback when I learned that the HUD area median income per household in Charlottesville, 123,300 and rising quickly. So I yeah. think we've seen some collateral damage post pandemic of the housing dynamics changing rapidly because of an influx of folks moving to this area for the same reasons we live here, fantastic yeah. quality of life. Right. Who wants to touch that, that topic? Do you want to go first? I can oh, go ahead. Kelly. Okay. Well, of course, more people coming in, the supply-demand shift happens. There are very few, there, there are less houses available for people who make less income. So that's just the driving of the market. Um, what, we, we can't control the market as a nonprofit. We have to just watch that and make sure that we carve out whether it's for, we carve out space for people who can have affordable homes. And um, we work with Piedmont Housing Alliance. They do primarily rental, and we do the home ownership piece of that. Um, but we, we, we keep our homes affordable, and we, keep, we have to advocate to make accessibility to that market. So um, 
Well, we have a lot of friends. I mean, we have friends on the city council. Um, in fact, just about the whole city council and the, the county as well has been very supportive of helping us guard and make some availability of homes for yeah. people who are, are less advantaged. Well, and how, and, and Richard, you jump in here, then we got questions. Viewers and listeners, ask the panel questions, number of questions coming in for you guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Charlottesville voters were, were pretty um, overwhelmingly uh, supportive and by pretty, I mean significantly, overwhelmingly supportive when it came to housing. Natalie Alsherin ran on a platform mm. specifically on housing. Yeah. She won in overwhelming capacity. Michael Payne, Lloyd Snook reelected. Bob Fenwick ran on a platform opposing density and loosening of the zoning code, right. and he did not do well. Mm-hmm. So it's clear the community has voiced through a democratic process that they want this with how they voted. Um, I want you to touch on the topic that Kelly just touched on, and then we have a number of questions for you guys. Yeah, great. Um, well, first of all, I, I can say, uh, and Kelly and I just, just chatted about this before the show, that as a for-profit developer, uh, I can do some things with uh, kind of cross-subsidies, ADUs, that kind of thing, to create workforce housing, right? So, which is a very small part of the, the segment of the market that, that needs to be addressed here. And for-profit developers simply can't, uh, without some kind of direct subsidy, simply can't provide affordable housing. It's just the economics don't work for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to partner with organizations like Habitat, like PHA, uh, to make affordable housing work. Um, but it's not going to be entirely on the, the back of... Um, of the private development community to make this happen. Um, there are some ways of um, some ways that I think the new zoning ordinance is going to help uh, by in- allowing increased density. And maybe that's a good segue to the other project uh, we brought with us, the project I'm working on with Roger right now. And if you can pull up those plans. Um, <coughs> the uh, We're working on a, a project. This is uh, under the we're planning on this. And they're uh, on screen now. We're working on it now. That will be um, when the new zoning ordinance is in effect. Uh, we'll make we'll submit this project. But it's a single-family house uh, on a corner lot, and under the new zoning ordinance, we it, it, the current house is now affordable housing, rented well below market rate. This is 1317 East Market Street. 1317 East Market yep. Street. Working on with Roger uh, Voisine. Um it's, it's a nice little house. It's a fine little house. It's, it's rented right now well under market rate. It uh, hasn't had a lot of investment over the years because it is, uh, with the current rent, there's just not a lot of, a lot of uh, money there left to do that. Uh, if you can go to the, the, the colored project, the colored plan uh, for that project, uh, what the new zoning ordinance allows us to do is to build um, some additional single-family houses on that same lot in the same scale, the same character as the existing neighborhood, and that will provide um, some funds to fix up the, uh, to renovate the existing uh, affordable units and keep those units units affordable. Um, so that's one, op- one, one way of, of, of seeing additional affordable housing under the new zoning ordinance. Um, again, I don't think we're going to see a lot of new construction by the private sector for affordable housing. Uh, to me, the big opportunity there is uh, internal accessory units, specifically uh, people who live in right now in oversized housing, uh, can, you know, under the new zoning ordinance, fairly easily uh, convert some of that housing to a separate unit. So he's talking like granny flats. Granny flats, exactly. Basement yeah. apartments. Yep, exactly. And I, I can speak from experience. You know, when we bought our house uh, here in Charlottesville 25 years ago, we added a, uh, a granny flat in, in the ground floor, which was allowed under the current zoning. And it's been, you know, it's, uh, it's not under on anybody's radar, but it's a de facto um, affordable housing unit. We've kept it rented as an affordable unit for 25 years now. Um, and that worked for us because... Um, you know, subdividing a, an existing single-family house into a couple of units is is in the realm of uh, economic viability. It worked for us as the owners, and it also works for the tenants as affordability. By contrast, uh, I've done some work 
uh, recently helping put, or working with people who are interested in, in building a new accessory dwelling unit cottage in the backyard, and we're finding the construction costs of those yeah, are just are astronomical. Just, uh, astronomical. It's just, just not going to work as a We're talking – I so, we had experts on this show um, talk about yeah. this, quarter million dollars. Oh, at least. Oh, yeah. For ADUs. For at least, C- yeah. Because people think the tiny home is more affordable. No. It's, <laughs> you still need the plumbing. You still have the electrical. You still have the water line. It's astronomical costs. And, that, and that's a great um, – Nicholas Kristoff in last weekend's uh, New York Times had a great, great column about. Did you read that? Yeah, yes. about affordable housing. One of the comments he he made was, um, well, I thought it was great. It's worth worth quoting here. Uh, there's no one answer to America's housing crisis, um, but I'd like to see local governments experiment, you know, by rewarding landlords for creating basement flats, taking in borders, or creating rooming houses. And that this was in addition to the, the, the main focus of the article was really about. Uh, how cities have, in many places, have lost their boarding houses over the, the last several decades, which, is, were, which were an important component of affordable housing. So the zoning, the new zoning ordinance is one piece of the puzzle, but it by no means is it the, the only thing that we need to do here. We need to partner with mm-hmm. Habitat. We need sure. to think about creatively about how the, the private market can help. Private landowners and private developers can help um, mm-hmm. Uh, and the city, working with them, can can really help address this uh, affordable housing. Robert Liberty and Kelly, you jump in. Robert Liberty, a professor, Keith likes to highlight this on the show, calls it a um, silver buckshot, not a silver bullet, basically <laughs> highlighting that it's a multi-pronged attack. <clears throat> yeah. I've talked on this show and on this network many times that I think the granny flats are the fastest and most efficient paths to creating additional housing because they have the lowest barrier of entry for housing. Um, The idea of having cottages and ADUs and tiny homes and the backyards in Belmont and North Downtown, it is so um, cost-concerning, and and I just don't see in this interest rate environment people taking lines of credit on their house to go $300,000 in debt to create a cottage in their backyard to get return on investment that's going to happen when they've passed away and maybe may come when their children are in their middle age. I just don't see that becoming a reality. Um, A lot of questions are coming in. Um, I would love to relay some of these on air. This is from one of our most astute viewer viewer and listener. He goes by the moniker Deep Throat on the show. Um, He's a heavy hitter that follows zoning very closely. Okay. Uh, He says, I'm curious if you can ask Kelly and Richard this question. What does it cost per square foot hard and soft costs to build commodity or affordable units these days? And the follow-up, does it seem plausible to both gentlemen that West Haven development or redevelopment, which had no land acquisition required, is being uh, scoped out at $495,000 in cost per unit? You could probably address the affordable. Uh, I, I don't know I what can, how, how, <clears throat> South, uh, I can. You know what that is is spending on, on units, but um, the, our newest our newest numbers right now. We, I would have to point to Southwood. Um, I think the the cost to build a unit a twelve hundred square foot unit. Do this math for me because I don't I don't usually have these numbers, but uh, <clears throat> is right about uh, two thousand two hundred twenty thousand. 220? 220, but that's with a, a really reduced cost for the land because we bought this at volume. So um, Construction cost, or that's to- your total cost? Uh, total cost. Total cost, yeah. yeah. So that doesn't have That's certainly land. not market in the private sector. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. But that's, that's what it costs us, and then we have to sell, when we sell that house. But it's, it's a 1,200-square-foot house <clears throat> that's got a different sort of market, you know, attractiveness in the market. But Was it three-bedroom, two-bath? Would you call it the shotgun house? Yep. Is that two bedroom, two bath? The layout are, are attached. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Two twenty. Uh, how about the private sector? Uh, my numbers <clears throat> are a little out of date, but uh, I think you know, we're talking well north of two hundred dollars a foot to, to build market rate housing. Two two fifty, maybe even up to three hundred. I think uh, three hundred is more of a sale price, but two two to two fifty range, I think, would be probably a good starting point for market rate. Yeah. Um, I don't know, is that the kind of numbers you've been seeing, Jerry? With uh, I, that's I, depending on what kind of customization you want. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can get you can spend thousands per square foot. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, to do basic 
market rate units, you're talking at least $200 a foot for construction costs you, these days, I think. You guys have uh, six um, real estate firms watching you on the program right now. The mayor's watching you here. Board of Supervisor on the program right now. Electeds in multiple counties on the show. Viewers and listeners, let us know your comments. We'll relay them live on air. Uh, Land acquisition. This one's coming from Grayson in North Downtown. Mm. Can both gentlemen Great speak question. to land acquisition, the rising cost of land acquisition, and how it impacts the back of the napkin uh, penciling of the business model for what they're doing? Uh, Richard is immediately nodding his head right now. Kelly, <laughs> uh, you can yeah. jump in. Richard, you jump in. I'll adapt to you guys. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, we both had headaches. Um, I, and this is one of the things we discuss and. My uh, side hustle at incremental development is uh, there's really two kinds of markets. Uh, there, there are plenty of towns around the country that are, are not seeing enough development, and that becomes a, you know, we've got to do this slowly and carefully, and we've got to make sure our ducks are all in line. The flip side of the market, like Charlottesville, when the market is hot, uh, there is a lot of land speculation going on, very difficult to acquire property. Uh, and Roger and I have been working on acquiring property for um, projects for a couple of years now. It's been very difficult, especially to acquire something at a uh, at a reasonable price. So uh, I, I would say that's going to be uh, it's definitely a uh, uh, how would I say a, it's going to have a chilling effect on on development for developers to try to acquire acquire property, and it's going to. It's going to push developers to build bigger projects more quickly. Um, so I think, um, yeah, definitely, the question of of how do we uh, sort of break the break the back of the uh, land speculation problem here is a great question. And uh, Kelly, I don't know if you have some no, insight I mean, into that that problem. But land uh, is land is land. Land it is land. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't sure. doesn't yeah it doesn't grow. <laughs> we yeah, it's a small exactly. pot. Uh, but we are um, very dependent on what the market does. We um, we had, go about this two basic ways. Uh, one is when we can afford to p- purchase a piece of land, we subdivide it and we do a mixed income development, yeah. and that's yeah. what we do. But um, when we sell those lots, that really does help financially with the rest of the model, the financial mm-hmm. model to yeah. build the affordable housing. Um, gosh, the Southern Home Development should be mentioned there. They've been very help, helpful with us. Frank and Charlie? Yep, that's right. And, um, and also Atlantic Builders, they're new to town. Um, but, um, uh, and so we sell them lots that helps them with their challenge, mm-hmm. and then we build a mixed-income development. On the other end of that, um, I know that Dan Rosenswag, he's always working trying to find uh, partners in the, in the for-profit to we, what we can bring to the table is a nonprofit proffer. Uh, excuse me, the affordable housing proffer. We can build the affordable housing pieces yeah. of a community um, as they move forward. And so, but it's just extremely expensive. And you know, and yeah. I end up having to raise a lot of money to buy that land. So I know the yeah, yeah. the price yeah, of yeah. that. We do have access to some um, some state grants and federal grants to help us with the land costs. But that's what we have to piece together in our quilt of revenue streams to make that possible. So we're we're strapped. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. finding land in town is just right next to impossible. I, uh, impossible. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, this is true of every community in the country that's got an affordable housing problem uh, that is, you know, land acquisition is, is a big part of the, a big part of the issue. Um, there have been some efforts in some communities, I'm not aware of any here in Charlottesville, to do land banking, for example, but that, you know, that really requires starting uh, years before with acquiring land and holding it uh, and releasing it in a subsidy or finding some direct subsidies to acquire land. Um, I mean, that's one way that the city could get involved. Um, uh, part of this, I think, also is maybe it's a little bit about education. Jerry, maybe you, you can would have some insight in this, but I one of the things I find is uh, a lot of landowners have a, a, a grossly inflated uh, opinion of what their land is worth. Of course, uh, I think they, uh, especially with, with upzoning on the horizon. Yeah, exactly. They start with the, uh, you know, what's this land going to be worth once the development is done, and that's what the land's worth. And you know, mm. somebody has to come along and acquire that land and do a lot of work to make it worth that much money. So I think well, that's, to the, that's to the, the I'll play devil's advocate for the sake of a talk show. Um, yeah. To the landowners' credit, or perhaps the foundation for their argument of land valuation. 
Yeah. Take X Park. I've said many times on the talk show, X Park might be the most primo piece of uh, dirt from an upside standpoint in a 10.2 square mile city, Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And I know the owners well. Alan Kajin listens to the talk show. Ludwig Kutner, I see on the regular. Yep. These guys are being taxed on the potential of their dirt. Yep. They're not being taxed by the city on what the dirt is today. Mm-hmm. To, so from their standpoint, they have said, look, when we're, it's currently for sale. It's on, the, it's on the market. It's on the market for, it's been on the market for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. The price is extremely high. Right, exactly. We, we yeah. all know this. Yeah. But to their point, they said we're being taxed on the potential and not what today's iteration is. So I guess I'm just offering that for the dialogue to have the viewers and listeners understand their point of view of of how they're offering valuation. Um, This is coming to feed for both you guys. Um, uh, This is from Jennifer, and she is an investor. And she said the land and the properties that are uh, in upzoning potential are being marketed today on what they can be tomorrow. And the price points reflect that. Do your panelists think that upzoning is going to make the land acquisition even more costly yes. moving forward once this is yeah. greenlit, and can they unpack that for us? No, so. no doubt. Uh, no doubt. That's the downside of any upzoning. Um, so, you know, the, uh, people are going to up their perception of what the land is worth based on the future, future value of that. So, yeah, it's gonna, that's definitely an, is, an issue. Yeah. Um, How's that impact you much. guys? I can't add much to that. I mean, it's, it's just true. It's just, that's what the market does. And it's what people, people want to find out what their true value is for their land. And they're thinking yeah. of families and income and future and all that. You can't fault them for yeah. checking and, that out. Yeah. Frankly, I think the only way I, that I've found around that uh, is to partner with landowners as opposed to acquiring the land. Because, um, you know, then uh, I can walk a, a landowner through uh, you know, open book process through the development process where the costs are, what the final, you know, the value is here. And by doing that, I can show them what their land is worth now to me as a developer, for example, mm-hmm. which inevitably is a lot less than they think it should be worth. Um, so really the way to unlock that value is to encourage landowners to partner with developers that way. Uh, you know, it's everybody sharing on the rewards, um, Makes development easier when you don't have to start with start with acquisition. I'm sure that would be yeah. true for you as well. Do you, have you have you done uh, partnership deals with landowners? Has that ever worked with you? Uh, yes, Dan Dan Rosenzweig. He does that often. Yeah, we do, okay, we do with, partnership deals. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, how about this follow up question? Um, and this is a good one from Stephen, who's in the real estate game. What's the role of Almaro County and limiting the county to five percent of the total? Um, I'll paraphrase for him. It might not be used in the right terms. Basically, Albemarle County, 5% of the entire county can be allocated for development. Much of Albemarle is limited in what can be done. What's Albemarle's role when it comes to perhaps alleviating the affordable housing crisis that we have? This is mm-hmm. clearly a crisis. And then I'll add to this, to Stephen's comment, what's UVA's role? Because well, the University of Virginia continues to acquire through a foundation that's not paying taxes on it, taking real estate off the rolls, which is putting more financial burden on those of us that own real estate. Um, We we Mm -hmm. all do here. Um, Basically making the area more expensive. Yeah. Well, I can start with that by first complimenting the county. I mean, it's it's been a long, we've been working with Outmar County to develop Southwood Trailer, redevelop Southwood Trailer Park since we purchased it in 2007. They've been a big part of it. taken a long time, uh, but now they're, they're, we have had all the staff come out and see and walk and see. We, we have a great collaboration moving forward because they know this is a big piece of solving the affordable housing problem in the county. Not only is it um, helping, I mean, to evict, if, if it had been sold on the market, there would have been 350 people living in trailers that would have been evicted to find housing in the market or somewhere in the surrounding area. So that was one problem that they were trying to avoid. And the second was trying to increase the affordable housing stock in the market. So they've been working with us closely, um, and they've made it possible. One of the things that they've done, and there's so many things, but one of the things that they've done specifically is to allow us to do ADU construction. We build ADUs into our modeling out there. Uh, Some of the Habitat homeowners who already have businesses um, and uh, 
they need space to grow. Uh, we're able to build an auxiliary dwelling unit call it, um, with a garage and a studio apartment above it. They can rent the apartment. It makes the whole model work. They can also use the garage for their business space. So um, that's so when you go out to Southwood neighborhood, and I give tours out there to Village One all the time, you can see ADUs that are already, already built that families will be able to use. Uh, but the, the county made that possible. So they, they've already been flexing up some um, to, in order to develop this 5% of land that's available. I'll throw it to you. We've had multiple supervisors on the show, and I'll highlight Michael Guthrie and Neil Williamson watching the program. We love the Free Enterprise uh -huh, Forum sure. and what Neil does. I had multiple supervisors sit in the seats that you're in. Um, I'll highlight Diantha McKeel. We'll highlight Donna Price and Ned Galloway. And they've highlighted until the 5% is that capacity why would we expand the 5% for more development? Yeah. They've said that. Those are almost exact words that they've said. Mm -hmm. So you got a two-part headed your way, and this is a good one where you can go anywhere you want. <laughs> Alvar County's role and the University of Virginia's role. Uh, <clears throat> boy, um, I, I don't know the, the, the county's zoning ordinance as well as I know the cities. I have to start with that uh, reflection. But um, uh, part, part of this is just... Um, and I think that's behind uh, Charlottesville's zoning ordinance reform is kind of liberalizing or modernizing the zoning ordinance. Um, so I th to allow denser, more mixed-use um, neighborhoods. Um, and I, I think that's coming. That seems to be coming nationally. I think people are getting the message nationally. So I'm sure um, I have no doubt that Avalmarl is looking at how they might be able to reform their zoning codes in some ways to, to, to help make that, that better. Um, yeah, I don't really know uh, how to respond to the UVA thing. It's been interesting. I, I guess one of my observations about the housing situation here in Charlottesville is um, we seem to have, and Kelly, you might have better data than I do, but we seem to have already a very significant portion of proportion of affordable housing in the city, but a lot of it's occupied by students, students. which leads me to the question about uh, maybe one of our solutions here is to uh, work with the university to try to get more student housing built uh, on campus, which they're Second years obviously on doing now. Yeah, Second on years on grounds is one that's been that's, discussed that's, a lot. Working on that. Yeah, they're working yeah. on that now, and so I think, uh, I think certainly that would be a uh, an easy way for the university to help us address the affordable housing. You want to touch that, Kyle? Yeah, um, I, this has been the problem. If you live anywhere in, in town, you realize how many students are in the affordable housing. Um, but I love the metaphor you mentioned on the, the silver shot, the silver blast. Silver buckshot. Silver buckshot, buckshot. Yeah. that's great, because I think there are many different solutions to this. Yeah. I, I do know this. Jim Ryan, the current administration, and the board of uh, the, the, the the visitors, Board of Visitors, is more friendly now than any other administration uh, yeah. towards affordable housing. They've yeah. done more. They pulled the community together three years ago, four years ago, to talk about it, to isolate what are the biggest problems the community needs support from the university in, and affordable housing was top of the list. Um, and they have, they have made, I think there are three parcels that they are developing at the the university will continue to own the land, but it will be affordable housing built there. Probably employees from the university will be living in that housing, yeah. most likely. Um, that is a move that had never been done before. So that's using university land and, and resources to do that. So that's, that's, that's kudos to them. Um, second year housing would do an amazing thing. To, thousands to, of Thousands beds. of units would become yeah. available yeah. Uh, yeah. In, the, in the Charlottesville corridor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that would be an incredible solution. But yeah. But this is a to, to give them credit where their credit is due. They're considering this more than any other group in the last 30 years that I've lived here. Yeah. Um, they've 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 um, nodded their head in the direction of it. Realized that they were part of the discussion and part of three different. I've been a part of three different large conversations for how they can be a part of the solution. But this has been the administration that's been the most supportive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. You guys want to highlight the role of transportation? When it comes to housing and affordability, I've tried yeah. to make I've tried to champion this and keep this in the in the conversation. Uh, yeah. We can't have housing affordability without ubiquitous and approachable and reliable transportation. Um, Amen. 
Yeah. And, and right now, and I'm not trying to throw shade, right now I think we can do much more when it comes to transportation for workforce and for those living well below AMI. Right. Um, yeah. see, I mean, you see this on High Street. There's a bus stop on High Street yep. where it's a stick by a sidewalk that's yep. overgrown with weeds. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's not even protected from inclement weather. Yeah. And there's bus stops all over the area like that. I really appreciate you bringing this up, and I didn't yeah. expect to come to the table with this conversation, but I have a special needs kid. She's 26. She lives in town. She, we, we've been fortunate to, uh, to house her. She lives in a, in a small duplex with a couple of other special needs kids. Um, and transportation is always the issue. Mm-hmm. I wanna, I'm very grateful for Jaunt. Jaunt does an amazing job to offer her... Uh, Options to be able to get to work. Uh, she yeah. works at the at Kindness Cafe at the YMCA. Yeah, wonderful nonprofit over there. Yeah. But catching the bus at the at appropriate time, uh, there just it doesn't run as much as it should. Um, she waits for a long time, and there's you know she's exposed to elements, and I mean there's a lot to be said. I would say there are many improvements could be done with cat. At the same time, she takes cat buses and she likes cat buses. She likes the drivers. She talks to them all. And they talk to her. So it's very family-friendly and city-friendly. But um, if it weren't for Jaunt, she would spend two or three hours a day getting around our town in a bus. And that's, that's hard. That's yeah. hard on a kid. Appreciate you sharing that perspective. Richard, you want to touch this? And then we have, I see, half a dozen questions and comments for you guys on the feed right now. I mean, that's uh, kind of, uh, you know, put on my old planning professor hat, this planning 101 is transportation is... Mm-hmm. absolutely key to any kind of urban development here. And, you know, I've lived most of my adult life in large cities. I'm a big transit fan. I love love doing that. love taking transit. Uh, rarely take the bus here. It's just not convenient. And I think, uh, as you say, it's, you know, even when I was teaching at UVA, it was... Uh, uh, it was easier, frankly, for me to walk than it was to wait for the bus right. uh, the mile and a half. So, uh, yeah, um, transit, uh, you know, it's kind of an old developer wag, you know, that, that transit has to come first. If you can't get people to where you're building, then you can't, uh, you can't, uh, you can't get them there. The, there's a lot of stories of uh, developers building streetcar systems back in the, you know, a century ago because that's the way they could get their buyers out to their, hmm. uh, out to their, their new property. Um, so, yeah, I think if we want to densify, uh, one of the questions that I don't think has been answered yet has been how do we deal with the transportation? I know there's some right. discussion about the Because the if we parking, densify, the, yeah, if yeah. we densify and it just creates more vehicles and automobiles on exactly. the road, that's going to impact quality of life. Yeah. And I don't think we are putting, I don't think we're emphasizing this enough. Yeah, I think I'm, you're right. You're probably you're right. Yeah. right. I think the parking uh, discussions going on right now, I think, is is very interesting. You know, my perspective as a developer is um, there is a lot of parking out there. It's just most of it's privately owned. Um, I know High Street, for example, um, has one parking space per unit. It's kind of at the edge of what people would consider walk- walkable to downtown Charlottesville, uh, but I had a number of people in the real estate community convinced that the project was going to fail because I only had one one space per unit. And yet I look around, there's on-street parking all over the place. There are empty parking lots, uh, you know, next door. So there, there are ways of consolidating parking that will allow... There's no way I could have built the high street project with two units per Two, two parking spaces per unit. It, just, it would not have worked. It would have been a much more suburban model. So I think if you want that kind of density, that kind of infill, then we're going to have to address parking in a different way besides mandatory minimum parking requirements. So you say, you say eradicate the uh, minimums altogether? Um, well, that's a good question. I think no smart developer is going to build units he can't sell. So, I mean, I, you know, I would have been glad to build High Street with no parking at all if I thought I could have sold uh, sold units with no parking. But I thought one unit 
one unit per unit was one space per one unit. Spa one space per unit was yeah. doable, and it was so. Uh, and it was it was a bit of a risk for me, but it was it, it worked. So I think uh, you know, yeah, I think the, the the more you can throw those decisions onto the uh, developer, the better. But I, I think uh, you know, my fallback in doing that was all these parking lots on adjacent mm -hmm. property, and I knew I could, if I had to, I could make a deal with an adjoining property owner to get, uh, mm -hmm. to lease some parking spaces uh, on a part-time-of-the-day project. But you know, you know, without, by removing the requirements that I, and I had to go through, again, a bunch of zoning hoops to get the city to approve that with one space <coughs> per unit, uh, but I think if we had, if I'd had that flexibility from the beginning, it would have made made the job a lot easier. The city could support that too by, you know, a lot of a lot of cities I would say have, uh, let's call them parking czars. You know, we really try to bring uh, more of these privately owned parking spaces into the public domain, so we don't have parking lots sitting empty for three quarters of the day. Which we see all over West Main all Street. Over, all over yeah. the city. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I get it. People want to be able to park near their business, but I, I think, you know, shared parking benefits everybody, I would, I would argue. Yeah. I, I, I concur. I have this romantic, futuristic dream, some, some have called it a fantasy, of a uh, robust gondola system uh, <laughs> with Charlottesville and Almaro County. A gondola system connecting Pantops with UVA Health, uh, 29 North with UVA Health, with the downtown mall, getting the vehicles off the road, almost like we see at ski, uh, like a, a ski resort. Granted, yeah. that would be obviously quite costly, but it would certainly be environmentally friendly. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking of, of Santa Monica as an example, kind of a, another town. They also have a downtown you know, pedestrian mall, and, but they have a fairly sophisticated parking system there. You can get an app, and you can look on your app and figure out where parking is available. There's signs on the street that shows where parking is available. So, so you're basically highlighting a joint venture with local government and private uh, private business. Well, in, in the the big picture of what can what can the city do to help affordable housing, I think that would be one thing they could really work on. That would make an impact. It an would immediate help. impact. It would help, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no doubt about that. Uh, questions, this is a good one, right up Kelly's um, alley here from Laura, who's watching the program. She's watching uh, north of town. How do we help Habitat Humanity with its goals? What are the next steps we need to do to get involved? Oh, my goodness. Well, thanks for asking the question, Laura. Um, there is, it's, it's, building homes is expensive. I should just say right off the top. Donating to us is... A, um, this time of year especially is very popular because you, there are tax advantages to that. Um, <clears throat> but um, paying attention... <clears throat> actually, one, a, a large part of my job is taking interested people on tours and seeing what, we're do, what we do in town and especially going to Southwood where we have a very large mixed-income development. I think I'll be talking more about this later. Um, and we've, this, was, this is a 125-acre development Eventually, there will be more than a thousand units on it. Half of those will be market rate. Half of them will be affordable. Um, that'll take another 14 years to build out. So, when people are really trying to think creatively about what can be done, that's a great place to go and exercise your mind to see what's already been, ha been happening. Yeah. Village Village One has 49 affordable units in it and 31 market rate units in it, yeah. and 20 of those are condos. So, and it, there's ADUs involved, so people can come and see that. Um, we we help need we need help volunteering. Um, we have a, a robust volunteer program where a lot of retired people come out and part of our midweek crew. I expect someday if I grow up and retire, I'm going to go out there once a week and bang nails with these guys uh, and guys and gals. Um, there's volunteering on site. There's volunteering at the Habitat store. Um, if you're you're really involved, we have some committees that are doing advocacy specifically with with people with our families um, and being involved that way but we would you would call the office and ask for Natalie our volunteer coordinator and she could set that up fantastic um, this has been a uh, more questions we'll get to guys we'll do this in rapid fire as we're an hour in an hour flies by when you're talking about topics you're passionate about um, does anyone want to touch this topic that's come in this question the uh, impact of what a payment in lieu of taxes 
with the university could have on the yeah. community? Anyone want to touch that one, or should I pass on that? That's uh, well above my expertise, <coughs> I think, too. so. Yeah, Me, too. I, I, yeah. I need to pass on that. Okay, one. totally understand that one. Yeah. Um, how about this one that's come in? Uh, can Richard highlight the uh, hard and soft costs on the ADUs? He touched on it earlier in the interview and how um, legitimate or expensive they are for construction. Uh, the hard and soft costs. Um, well, you know, we just I just worked on a <clears throat> a, uh, a an external ADU uh, North Downtown fairly recently. It was renovation of an existing garage, and detached garage, a detached garage, um, and that it still came in, you know, north of three hundred thousand uh, dollars. Just you know, crazy. Uh, was the garage a teardown? Uh, I mean, it might as well have been. It was. I mean, basically, by the time we were done, it was a foundation and a couple of walls. But um, so it didn't really save that much money, and there was no land cost involved. And, and north real, of three hundred thousand with no land costs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, moderate. How many yeah. square feet was that? Uh, it was uh, under six hundred square feet. Yeah, it's just Get it's out. it's crazy. Yeah, that is I know, crazy. It's crazy. And and yeah, it we is. could have pared it. We could have pared it down. We could have used uh, a much more basic. You know, the homeowners wanted something that look nice and fit into their aesthetic so uh, and it could have been pared down quite a bit and I think they did do quite a bit of, of uh, uh, value engineering as they call it. So you're uh, saying you, they went custom? Sorry? They went custom in a lot of choices? Was, yeah, not, not over the top by any means but it was uh, you know it was it's nicely designed uh, inside and outside so it's not uh, not kind of quick and dirty uh, housing so I, I just don't see a lot of people buying doing that, whether that's for a market rate unit or for a uh, uh, for affordable housing. I just don't see that's going to happen. But uh, you know, my own experience with uh, an internal accessory dwelling unit, which was using you know unused space in my house, for example, um, was. Uh, for me, it was a, a kind of a combination of sweat equity and uh, working on it over the years, and I was able to pull that unit together fairly quickly. So. You, you also have the advantage of experience in being in the game, though. Yeah. A lot of folks don't have that, that skill set. Uh, and there, again, I think that's one place where the city could, uh, as Christoph was talking about last weekend, could really help here. I think any kind of development project like this, you know, trying to create a granny flat in your own house. It's complicated, you know. It's you got to figure out the financing, you got to figure out the design, you got to figure out construction. There's permitting involved. It's not something that uh, the average homeowner has a lot of uh, expertise on. So I think um, having some organization, whether that's the city or someone like PHR Habitat, who could help homeowners uh, make these things happen, I think would be a, a big help. Outside the introduction to like Habitat. Or, or, or PHA, I mean, why not the tax incentive, the tax break, uh, for the homeowner to encourage the granny flat construction? Sure, I mean, great. I would be more open-minded to something like that if sure. I saw a return through potentially a savings in June and December with my tax bill. That's a great idea. I'm not sure what state law actually allows in that. Uh, maybe, Kelly, you have a better idea, but I'm not sure you can, uh, can do that kind of differential taxation. I mean, there's been plenty of... Uh, a lot of uh, kind of interesting ideas about t different taxation to help create affordable housing, mm -hmm. uh, land value taxation, for example, instead of uh, real property uh, taxation, tax breaks that would provide incentives. I'm, uh, I'm not sure with the Dillon rule. Uh, right. Legislation yeah. here, that's something that's actually permissible in Virginia. But uh, We're a Dillon rule state, so what the yeah. local municipalities can do, viewers and listeners, is often tied to the folks in Richmond and not the folks on council or yeah. on the, uh, the board of supervisors. Tax team. increment financing, another great thing we could do, but I, you know, that's more, very complicated in Virginia from what I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Very yeah. complicated in Virginia. Roger Voisinet highlights that West Virginia <laughs> University has a gondola system moving people around. Um, guys, we're an hour in. I want to give you guys uh, the forum here with a boatload of heavy hitters watching the program for you to go any direction you want. Please utilize the platform for any topic you want to cover that needs attention. you got local media, local electeds, and movers and shakers watching you right now. Can we go first? Go well, I would, I would focus on um, 
the collaboration that happens around a mixed income community yeah. uh, that involves the market rate builders and, a for, and, and nonprofit builders, whether it's Piedmont Housing Alliance or Habitat for Humanity. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a large, if we're really concerned about our neighbors and the total economic viability of our community, we really need to make way for people in the lower area median income levels to get a piece of the pie, to be able to get out of poverty, not just poverty, but good enough, build, build equity enough to be able to send their kids to school or retire. So we're talking about people in the 60% of the area, 40, 60, 80% of AMI, um, to make some, op some options available. Um, <clears throat> what, what we're doing in the mixed income model is exactly that. Uh, we're, we're able to sell houses to people, bring them into a mortgage situation where they end up reducing the cost of their house by building it as well, working with us. They get educated in the whole process. Um, uh, this is an amazing revitalization of, of, of our community. We've built, Habitat's built 300, more than 350 units in town now this way. It's awesome. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a plug to Habitat because I, I think I, I worked in several, I've worked Habitat International. I've been around the country a, a lot. Um, we have the leading Habitat affiliate in the country for innovation. Uh, we are known as the ones who can take a trailer park and redevelop it without evicting people and then build it into a mixed-income neighborhood. That's, that's layers of development and, and innovation. So we, we should be able to celebrate it in town. Charlottesville is a place where that sort of collaboration can happen, yeah. and it happens best when we see each other as neighbors and not as the competitive piece of people who want to take away something from us. Yeah, yeah so that's a great point. I think that's a, that's a place to start in this whole discussion about affordability is see other people as someone who wants to be able to make a living and be a part of the American dream. Um, mixed income development is, is a big part of that, and I think we're able to do that. But we as nonprofit um, builders and, and mortgage holders um, need to be able to work with the market to do that and find people who are willing to see that we have a collaborative thing that adds value to the whole community. Well said, um, Kelly. Well, thanks. Um, and I, we give tours. Uh, we're just right. We've been doing it for 20 years, so people have no idea until they go out. And I hear it every doggone time. I take people out to see Southwood. They go, we had no idea it could no work. Idea. Had yep. no yep. idea it could work. Yep. So I invite people who are in decision-making places and have resources to come and get educated. It's not a fundraising pitch. It's just a come get educated pitch. Yep. Um, so we offer that. Um, probably your turn, Richard. Well done, uh, Kelly. That was good hosting right there. I like well, that. Thank you. I tried. We tried to. We can invite you back here. Plug, yeah, oh, good. Yes. Um, you know, I, I I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of concern about the new zoning ordinance. Uh, a lot of people are scared about it. I get it. Um, you know, change is scary, but we've got a lot of problems with the current zoning ordinance that are. I, I hope this new <coughs> zoning ordinance will address a lot of them. Um, and just speaking from experience, the collaboration uh, uh, model, I, I, I share Kelly's uh, uh, feelings that, that mixed-income neighborhoods are important. And uh, I've had several discussions with Habitat about partnering on projects we haven't found the right one to do yet. And mm -hmm. you know, Habitat's one organization with limited capacity, so they can't, you know, can't solve every affordable housing problem in town here. Yeah. Uh, but every, every discussion usually revolves around a piece of land. A piece of land. What yeah, do we do exactly. with that? Yeah. How, do we, so, how do we make this work? Yeah. I've done mixed income communities. They work. They work economically. They work as neighborhoods. You know, River Bluff, River's Edge, High Street are all mixed income uh, mm -hmm. units. Uh, I mean, there's some tricks to doing that, uh, but I've never heard someone say, uh, you know, the the affordable housing and ruined this project, Richard. That's that just doesn't. That's not what happens. You know, you need to. These things need to be built as part of the uh, the overall vision. And I think last time I was here, Jerry, I had a um, I made a comment that um, Bompinio had mentioned to me that mm. that one of the keys here uh, uh, with this new code is uh, it, it's very design centric in the sense that. Um, it's possible, even under this new zoning ordinance, to do something really bad. 
Uh, it's certainly possible under our current zoning ordinance to do something really bad. I think key to the success of this zoning ordinance or any kind of zoning ordinance or redevelopment effort is going to be kind of thoughtful, creative solutions uh, to these problems. And that I'm not trying to plug <laughs> plug the architecture profession here necessarily, but I think we do need to uh, be a little bit more creative about uh, about design and mm -hmm. uh, come up with some uh, some creative solutions that will allow us to densify in a way that um, fits in with the existing community, fits in with uh, the way people would like their neighborhoods to evolve. I think the reaction I've had from the High Street project for me was very encouraging. It's like, you know, this is, people want this, so great. It takes, uh, it took a lot of design thought to come up with that solution, and I don't think that um, new infill development is, is easy. It's more complicated, and it needs some creative thought and creative thinking and partnerships with, uh, with other organizations to, to make those projects successful. So. You guys are uh, fantastic. On the talk show, make the make my job easy. Well, good. This, is, this is what I do for a living. I right. enjoy talking with. Didn't know, uh, didn't know what to expect, but well, you, yeah. you made it easy. Did you have good. Fun? good, good. We had um, the for those that are asking, and I see a lot of you asking the question. The show will be archived on uh, realtalkwithkeithsmith.com and on ilovesieville.com. Will be archived wherever you get your podcasting and social media content. So basically everywhere. Um, if you open up your phone, you'll find it. Um, these guys are great. I think they're committed to moving the community in a, in a better and more positive place. This is what we do know. The city is 10.2 square miles, and 53% of uh, housing in the city is R1, single-family detached housing. Um, and if we want truly to have affordability in the city, 53% of the housing in the city can't be R1, single-family detached housing because that just makes the supply too finite and drives prices up. We'll continue the real estate chatter on our flagship show, the I Love Seville show at 12.30 p.m. We have Hillary Murray, who is the head of the Lewis Mountain Neighborhood Association. And what we'll talk about at 12.30 is a 10-story, 130-foot-tall, 242-unit apartment building, potentially at the site of the truest bank building um, on Ivy Road. You can understand that those in the Lewis Mountain neighborhood are a bit, and I'm choosing my words carefully, um, frustrated that a 10-story, 130-foot-tall, 242-unit apartment building is on the cusp, potentially, of development. We'll hear it from the Lewis Mountain side at 12.30 p.m. For Richard and Kelly and our producer, Judah Wickhauer, my name is Jerry Miller. Thank you kindly for joining us. Take care. It was excellent. He's going to tell us when the